Welcome to the Talks on Law Illinois MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. With the Russian invasion of Ukraine and retaliatory sanctions against Russia, the relationship between Russia and the United States is tense. In fact, the Biden administration recently announced that they have evolving evidence that Russia is considering a cyber attack against the United States. So what does a cyber attack mean under international law? When does it qualify as a use of force? Today we'll discuss. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by a cybersecurity expert, Professor Duncan Hollis of Temple University School of Law. Professor, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. Thank you, Joel, for having me. You must be incredibly busy at the moment. Yeah, so no, I, I, you know, in between teaching this and I do some consulting and the like working among others with like Microsoft and then advising folks at the United Nations and elsewhere, you know, I think we're kind of in an in-between space. We've had the kind of the horrors of the actual invasion by Russia of Ukraine. I think many experts were kind of surprised that there was not the level of cyber operations that, that had been predicted in Ukraine. There were certainly were some, particularly in the first couple of days of the invasion, but there haven't been the sustained sorts of cyber attacks that many were expecting. And yet, nonetheless, as, you, as you've noted, uh, the Biden administration in particular has kind of been warning that just because we haven't seen it yet doesn't mean it's not uh, lurking around the corner. And so I think people are, are very much on high alert. And one thing that I was learning as I was prepping for our conversation today is cyber attacks similar to well-planned military attacks take some time to prep. And, and so, you know, a, the decision to make a cyber attack might result in a successful attack months later. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Some operations will take months, if not years, basically to first get access to the target, to then kind of map the networks, to figure out what what is possible and what's not possible, and then to deploy some exploits, right? We call them exploits that will, you know, either survey the system, so you can think about this as cyber espionage, or maybe do more where you target the integrity of the system or its availability in some way. And, you know, and that, that can take time. And especially, I think, when we talk about this being done by states, particularly states like the United States who follow the rule of law, will do so with some care. And so they're, they're not going to just release on the world some malware uh, like we saw, say, in 2017 when, you know, we have the incidents with, I think, not Petya and WannaCry, which were these malware incidents that caused billions of dollars of damage around the world you're often likely to see states trying to do something that's a little bit more targeted. And with that sophistication comes both extra effort and extra resources and extra time needed. Interesting. So states may be a little reticent to release, you know, I, I'm thinking of it as an analogy to a bioweapon where you might get your own citizens sick. I think that's right. I think that what we saw, particularly there was a, you know, a few years back, there was a leak of the NSA software called Eternal Blue. This was related to the, St- the Snowden dump? Yeah, thereafter. And, you know, but that leak of that particular software, you know, has been used by cyber criminals and others, has been repurposed and repackaged, and now suddenly is, you know, part of a suite of materials of this malware that can cause harm. And so, you know, I think that's the, the challenge here with this is, You know, the very things that you're using to your own advantage can be turned around and used against you. And then more broadly, as you pointed out, sometimes when you launch an operation, it spills over. It ends up either coming back on your own population or it goes globally. Uh, And so 
I think that's one of the reasons why if you're going to engage in cyber, you need longer lead times. And so to come back to the Russia story, you know, one of the things I've heard, for example, is that because Putin kept his plans so close to the vest, the Russian forces, who are quite good, didn't have the lead time they needed to conduct the sorts of operations we would have would have expected them to. You hinted at a couple of things that I think will be important themes for today's conversation. One is you said countries that respect the rule of law, leaving open the fact that others may not. And I think today our conversation will really be at the intersection of crime and sovereignty. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, so I think you have to step back, I think, and, and think about this. This is this is actually a, a story about law and cyberspace, you know, has been going on for several decades. You know, in the domestic context, you kind of had the, the famous Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace by John Perry Barlow, the Grateful Dead lyricist and, and the founder of the EFF, you know, kind of saying, hey, you know, cyberspace, we're free of governments, we're free of government regulation, we can, you know, we're going to construct our own new, uh, you know, digital world. I think we tend to cite that today as a cautionary tale, because that's not what happened, right? What, what's happened is states have employed their regulatory authority and their technical capacity to, you know, as, as China shows, to kind of throw up the great, you know, cyber wall of China to kind of put barriers between its people and their access to the global internet. Uh, and we've seen, you know, the capacity of states like the United States or Israel or Iran to actually kind of conduct cyber operations and the like. And so you've got this now world of states who are engaging this activity. You also, of course, have that happening alongside the much longer tale of individual hackers or now groups of hackers who engage in criminal behavior. So we have a kind of all this bad activity that can happen online. And then the question becomes, what rules of the road should states follow in terms of their own behavior, but also in terms of how they're going to regulate their own citizens or foreign, foreign actors? And actually, it was it was actually Russia in 1998 uh, that went to the United Nations and said, "Hey, you know, we need to we need to have a, a negotiation about what the rules of the road are going to be uh, in this information environment." And I think for the Russians and for the Chinese, the idea was we want to regulate what's said online. We want to regulate speech, particularly subversive speech. And the West was cool to that idea. Western states, liberal democracies were cool to that idea. But nonetheless, you know, meetings started to occur and there was a larger kind of ongoing conversation along those lines of, well, what are the rules going to be? And it actually took almost, took more than a decade. It took until 2013 for states to agree that existing international law, right, the rules that apply, you know, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine or, or that apply to trade relations among states or to environmental regulation, those rules extend into cyberspace, that cyberspace is not some law-free zone or, or one where it'll be self-governing. We've now seen an ensuing kind of decade where agreeing that international law applies in cyberspace, the next step has been, can we agree on how it applies? And that's where I think you've seen actually a fair bit of difficulty. Why don't we jump into that disagreement? I guess if you had to put... If you had to create camps of, of disagreement, are there more than two or three or, or are there a plethora? I've kind of likened it to, um, I said, like, if you want to think about international and cyberspace, think about like Jean-Paul Sartre, baby carriages and horses. So Jean-Paul Sartre, of course, is the father of existentialism. And I think there is a set of existential debates about, as I said, there was like an existential debate about does international law apply at all? We've kind of moved past that. But now we have kind of this series of debates about specific 
bodies of international law and do they translate into the digital domain or not? Um, so, so for example, international humanitarian law, that is the laws in an armed conflict. There's been a longstanding dispute chiefly between say the US and China, the US saying those rules apply. The International Committee of the Red Cross says those rules apply and China says, no, no, it would militarize cyberspace to have those rules apply. And so it's for years resisted. They wouldn't even allow the word international, the words international humanitarian law to be used in UN documents until this past year. And so for the first time, they've said there's a consensus report that says international humanitarian law might might apply in cyberspace. You know, and that's just one example of what I'd say are these existential debates. These rules that we already have outside of the digital domain, do they apply in cyberspace at all? And then when I talk about baby carriages, there was this famous debate between two um, legal jurists, uh, Lon Fuller and HLA Hart, many decades ago. And there was this kind of challenge posed that you go to, there's a park and there's a sign at the outside of the park and it says no vehicles in the park. Then the question, the debate began of, right, well, what does that ban? And, you know, oh, well, it obviously bans automobiles. Does it ban bicycles? Is that, you know, is that a vehicle? And then what about baby carriages, right? Baby carriages have four wheels. They are made to carry a person in the same way as a car. Is a baby carriage in the ambit of the rule or not? So it's kind of an, you know, it's a stand in for what we call interpretive disputes. We agree there's a rule, but we don't agree what it means. And so I think that's kind of a second camp or a second bucket of issues that we see in the cyber context where, for example, states agree that there is um, a, a prohibition on the use of force, right? That you're, you're not supposed to use force unless in self-defense or unless the Security Council authorizes it. And and they've, I think, increasingly agreed that that can translate into the cyber context, but then it becomes, well, what what does a use of force in cyberspace look like? You know, so it's an interpretive dispute. And we see that in other areas maybe we can, we can talk about. And you said something about a horse or a horse law? Yeah, the third piece of it was horses. And that refers to Judge Frank Easterbrook, uh, again, several decades ago, wrote this kind of famous contribution called The Law of the Horse at, a, at a, an early cyber conference where he said, you know, we don't have a law of the horse, right? When you go to law school, you don't study the law of the horse. You study contracts, you study property, you study these kind of general rules, and then you think about how they apply to horses, but you don't necessarily have a law of the horse. And he, his challenge was to say, you know, we don't need a law of cyberspace either, right? We just take the existing general rules and we apply them into the cyber context. So according to this judge, we could have skipped that whole conversation of whether international law applied to cyber. Yeah, I think so. And then Larry Lessig, who's a famous, another famous professor, wrote back and said, absolutely, we do need a law of the horse. You know, cyberspace is different, right? It's, it's a man-made socio-technical institution. You know, it's different than the real space that we otherwise occupy. And I think that debate also continues in global conversations as states are kind of right now still fighting about whether we can just, is, is the, are the existing rules enough and it's just a translation issue, or do we need a standalone cyber treaty of some sort? And actually, as of February 2022 into March 22, we've seen the beginnings of uh, a UN negotiations over a global cybercrime convention. And the question that many have is whether that cybercrime convention will encompass cybersecurity more broadly. Like, will it purport not just to regulate what criminals can do, but will it regulate states themselves? And I think that's going to be pretty well contested. So I do think that there's those at least three buckets of issues uh, that we see in this space and three sorts of problems. I might even add a fourth if I can continue with my analogies. There's a sound of silence to think about Simon and Garfunkel also that's problematic because the nature of cyber operations is that they're, they're covert. 
right? You're trying in most cases not to be discovered or if discovered, not to have it attributed to you. And that makes the construction of law difficult. If everything's being done outside of the public limelight, how do you know what good practices are and what practices are wrongful or unlawful that you can then apply all those, you know, even if we can agree what law applies and what it means and whether it's tailored to cyberspace or it's a generally applicable rule, even if we get to all of that, we still need some practice to apply it to. And if that practice is hidden or covert, that, that's an additional challenge. The laws may be good and well, uh, but difficult to enforce in, in a world where so much of this is done in the shadows. Maybe we could just quickly describe international law in its two baskets, I suppose. Most of us, when we think of international law, we're thinking of treaties that countries or the world have agreed to, but there's also something called customary international law. Maybe, could you do a quick overview? Sure. So, yeah, so international law it originated as kind of the law among nations. You know, it was to regulate state A's relationship with state B, and that can be done through a number of kind of sources. Probably most prominent is, as you mentioned, the treaty, right? Like this is this august instrument. It's been around for millennia, you know, but promises among nation states are to be kept, right? Like that's the idea. If you, if you do this thing, if you meet, you know, complete all the formalities, it's a treaty, you're bound by it. And international law will provide repercussions if you don't follow. Now, you know, what's different between international and national law is there's no global police force. There's no global court a lot of the enforcement is going to be kind of horizontal. It's more like if you think about some sort of, you think about like a church setting or a communal setting where, you know, instead of there being somebody comes in to enforce the rules, it's your peers that enforce. Are you wearing the right clothing? Are you behaving in the right way? And they'll pull you aside and they'll steer you in that direction. And we see that in international law, both with treaties and then with this other idea of customary international law. And customary international law is the idea that if states not only do they engage in some practice, there's something they do or there's something they don't do over a, you know, a period of time. And it's that practice is kind of uniform, that states are doing the same thing or not doing the same thing. And there's enough of them doing it. And if they do that out of a sense of legal obligation, we say, look, you don't actually have to have it written down in a treaty. It doesn't need to be you know, formalized in a treaty. Customary international law can emerge through state practice that states themselves recognize as law. You know, for example, for, you know, the law of the sea, the U.S. doesn't belong to the major treaty on the law of the sea, the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, but yet the U.S. recognizes that the U.S. territory goes to 12 nautical miles off the U.S. coast, and there's a, you know, a zone beyond that, and there's the high seas beyond that, and that's all as a matter of customary international law that the U.S. and other states accept as law. And so, you know, in cyberspace, where we don't really have treaties. We have, there's one treaty, the Budapest Convention, which was negotiated by the Council of Europe. So it's kind of European focused and it's only focused on cybercrime. And the negotiators were pretty clear in negotiating it that it wasn't supposed to do with anything that was authorized by a state. So anything a state authorizes would be outside its ambit. You know, other than that, and other than the ongoing negotiations over a global cybercrime convention, we don't really have treaties in cyberspace. And so that I think leaves us to say, well, if, the, if there are rules, what are the rules, where are they going to come from? And the idea is they're going to come from, from custom. And that dovetails with the discussion we were having earlier about, well, if custom is state practice, but you can't observe what states are doing, you know, how are you going to be able to identify what the customary rules are in cyberspace? And so some say, oh, well, we have these other, these generally applicable rules. 
We just assume they apply in cyberspace until states tell us otherwise. And others say, no, no, we actually need to observe the practice of what states are doing or not doing in cyberspace and kind of construct the law from there. And now a quick break for those listening for MCLE credit. The code for this interview is 118811. Again, that's 118811. And now back to the interview. Professor, we're going to talk about cyber attacks and whether or not they trigger international law, whether or not they're acts of war. But what what are we talking about in terms of cyber attacks? Maybe could we do a quick run through of the of the arsenal? You know, in terms of the arsenal, we could go through and catalog. Oh, there are things called viruses, and there are things called worms and Trojan horses. You know, I think things that you'll read about in Wired magazine or in the New York Times. But I think for computer scientists, they tend to think about cybersecurity threats in terms of the losses that might occur, and they tend to talk about it as a CIA triad, right? And that CIA triad is not the Central Intelligence Agency. It's losses of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So the idea is that, like, sir, if someone can get into your system and you know deploy a payload, you may lose the confidentiality you would otherwise enjoy, right? So somebody can spy on your email that you didn't intend for them to see, or you can get in to see the intellectual property of a firm's you know trade secrets and the like. And so a lot of what we're talking about with respect to cyber threats is losses of confidentiality, data breaches. We've compromised an insurance company and everybody's social security numbers are compromised and we've compromised you know, all these millions of credit card numbers and, and the like. I think kind of moving up the scale, then there's also the potential for a loss of integrity, right? Which is that you get into the system and the attacker is able to make the system do things other than its intended operations. And so that could entail it not working properly. It could entail it working properly, but doing other things. I've always kind of envisioned like somebody could get into the bank accounts and start moving decimal places, right? So you're no longer just looking at what who has what money. You're now you know manipulating the integrity of those records as the like. And then third, there's the loss of availability. And this has become, I think, pretty prominent in the last year as we've seen the rise of so-called ransomware attacks where the malware is gets into your system and what it does is it encrypts your hard drive or it encrypts a network and you know usually says you can get access back if you pay some amount of cryptocurrency or the like but not always you know there's also what we you might see sometimes called distributed denial of service attacks which is you don't even get into the victim systems what you do is you just manage to bombard it with so many requests you overwhelm the server. It overwhelms the server. And so I think one of the things is that, you know, within the range of that, you know, some of this can be pretty of not great interest to national security or national lawyer types. And some of it can, can, and it will often be a matter not of the loss of confidentiality, integrity, and availability. It'll be about the indirect effects. So what are you going to, what's going to happen with respect to a hacker or some group's ability to get into a system? And I think the, the kind of the, the seminal moment and the one that may lead us into kind of the law of war discussion occurred in the so-called Stuxnet worm. And what happened there is allegedly the United States and Israel, they've never kind of admitted to it, managed to get into the Natanz nuclear facility in Iran, worried the U.S. and Israel were worried about Iran's nuclear proliferation potential. And they managed to 
mess with the integrity of the systems, the programmable logic controllers that controlled the centrifuges. And right. And so they did two things. One, they started getting the centrifuges to run at unsustainable speeds. So they kind of started to literally kind of self-destruct. And at the same time, they managed to convince the operators of the system that nothing was wrong. So the people in the control room, everything looks like it's fine. But meanwhile, down in the room where the centrifuges are, they're breaking. And I think for many, this was kind of both a, a, a signal of the areas in which, as a matter of national security or international security, cyber had kind of bridged that it's all online divide to having kinetic real world effects, right? Now you're talking about you can actually, through cyber means remotely, be able to damage, if not destroy, you know, real things. And in that case, setting back the nation's nuclear capabilities by years? I don't, yeah. So I think that the challenge, of course, is I think later folks have kind of said, well, it didn't set them back. It, it set them back months to maybe a couple of years. I think they've caught back up since then, but it is, you know, I think Stuxnet was kind of a wake up call for those states who had not been focused on this to say, wait a minute, there's, there's this both untapped potential that we can think about using cyber for and also heightened risks. I think what we've seen in the ensuing years is an awareness that what was accomplished in that Stuxnet operation was A, was really hard, right? It required a lot of effort to figure out how do you get this malware onto a, a system, by the way, that wasn't connected to the internet. So, you know, the rumor is that literally they dropped thumb drives in the, in the parking lot or somebody, somehow somebody managed to pick up a thumb drive or something and, and plug it in. And then that was how the malware ended up on the Iranian systems. And so, you know, I think that was a particular challenge. And then Apropos of what we were talking about earlier, the actual Stuxnet, the virus then spread not just to the Natanz system, but across the globe. It was basically on any Siemens system, it appeared. Now, it was dormant, right? Only on the Natanz facility was Stuxnet operating. But, you know, nonetheless, you had all these facilities where suddenly the IT folks are like, well, we got to, you know, we got to rebuild the system because we have this, albeit dormant malware, but we still have the malware. And so I think folks have said, look, there's, you know, even in such a highly skilled operation, such a carefully thought out operation, there were these external effects. And we don't know if they were intended or not. We don't know if that was part of the design or if actually it was a mistake and it kind of escaped. And so as a result, I do think what we've seen is that states have rapidly built out their cyber forces. So the United States Cyber Command now has more than 6,000 members of the military engaged in both offense and defense. And we're among you know dozens of nations that have that capacity. But I think, as you alluded earlier, they tend to employ that capacity in kind of a gray zone. So we're seeing that. We can maybe talk a little bit about you using it for influence operations. And then we're seeing it for kind of smaller intermittent destructive acts. And so Ukraine, for example, but pre the Russian invasion, you know, in 2015, someone, uh, allegedly the Russian government, right, shut down the power grids, but for like six hours, right, they were able to get them back on. And that that's happened several times. And so we've seen some kind of further examples of a Stuxnet like effect, but we haven't seen the kind of widespread predictions of, say, a digital Pearl Harbor, where you're going to have a, you know, a post-apocalyptic or an apocalyptic event. And so I think that's kind of tempered how we think about this. I think people still worry a little bit that what could happen through cyber means could be very serious, and it could be the sorts of things that will lead to death and widespread damage uh, and destruction to property. 
but clearly we're not seeing it yet, if ever, going to reach the level of the missiles or the boots on the ground and the horrors that we're witnessing in a place like Ukraine. You mentioned Stuxnet as a, a clear example. Would you consider that, would the U.S., for example, would we consider that to be a military attack on the nation if someone, if another foreign power hacked into our nuclear arsenal and, and rendered it unusable? Yeah, so I think one of the challenges kind of is all states agree that, you know, the use of force is prohibited. You're, you're not supposed to engage in force, as I said, unless in self-defense in response to an armed attack or the UN Security Council greenlights you. And, you know, we have clear examples in the kind of the kinetic space of what would constitute use of, uh, of force. And it involves a certain scale of violence and certain, you know, destructive effects. And the, and the question is like, yeah, did Stuxnet cross that line? States themselves have been quiet on, uh, they'll talk about the, what the use of force prohibition means generally, but they've been pretty reluctant to point fingers and label any particular act and say, oh, that's a violation of the use of force. And, you know, so for the U.S. has, has never, you know, it, first of all, admitted to Stuxnet, nor admitted whether they thought it was a use of force or not. You know, much more generally is the idea of, hey, if critical infrastructure is targeted in a way that destroys it, we would consider that a use of force. You see general statements to that effect. And so what's happened in the silence of states is a bunch of experts have tried to convene, and there's actually, it was an independent group of experts that convened in Tallinn, Estonia. And Estonia has its own story to tell in, in this story of international and cyberspace. Maybe we can, we can talk about that in a sec. But they produced something called the Tallinn Manual. Uh, they actually produced 1.0 and 2.0. And it tries to kind of elaborate, like, what are the rules for international law and cyberspace based on these general rules that we've, we've already discussed? And they do think that, that that group of experts did think Stuxnet was a use of force. And so probably prohibited unless the U.S. could have argued that some U.N. Security Council resolution targeting Iran authorized it in some way. I don't know what that argument would look like, but I guess it's possible. Or perhaps the U.S. would try and argue self-defense. Also difficult. But activities like Stuxnet have triggered exactly that sort of question of, wait, where are the lines here? Because it's important to know where the lines are, because what you don't want to do, obviously, is think one state doesn't want to think, oh, I'm just engaging in something that I think is, you know, espionage or kind of below the use of force threshold. But then the other state perceives it as above the threshold and then says, I can respond in self-defense. And suddenly you're escalating into an armed conflict. And so that's that's long been a worry uh, about these cyber operations, that unless there's at least enough kind of sharing our agreement on those rules of the road, we might end up stumbling into a conflict. So, Professor, where would you look, where, where would legal scholars look as a starting point in defining a use of force? Well, so first of all, right, it's encapsulated in the United Nations Charter, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter is where we find this prohibition. And, you know, I think at the, at the time the Charter was negotiated, it was pretty clearly limited to military force, right? The idea was the sort of force we'd seen deployed in World War II, that was to be off limits. And then the, the questions become since, well, it was all about kind of kinetic force, but what about a biological weapon or a chemical weapon that's not kinetic? It's not like you're breaking things, but it certainly spreads and cause harm. And so we've seen the expansion of the definition of force kind of evolve through other treaties and through practice. You know, unfortunately, we've had a fair number of conflicts since the Second World War, and all of that precedent, I think, is available for us to think about in the cyber context. 
I think it's become much more uh, a question of what we call the effects doctrine. And you basically, the idea is if the effects of what occurs via cyber means are analogous to the things that we thought were use of force in you know previous kinetic conflicts, that's enough. That's that's how we're gonna we're gonna measure it by analogy. Is it what's the distinction between use of force and an act of war? Uh, how are those two inter- interrelated? So international lawyers, we kind of we stopped using the word war in between World War One and World War Two. There's a famous treaty called the Kellogg-Briand Pact in, in between the interwar period where states agreed to prohibit war. And so, you know, unfortunately, what that meant was then states started engaging in conflicts and using armed force and they stopped calling it war. As you know, like the United States has uh, Congress has declared war very rarely. You know, Afghanistan was a conflict. It wasn't a war. You know, the North Korean conflict and the like. If you follow Russian TV, the engagement in Ukraine is not a war. Right. It's a special military operation. Exactly. And so um, what we actually see is, again, is that is that prohibition on, you know, a use of force. Now, the other thing that we have is, is what's called an armed attack. Right. So all states have an inherent right of self-defense. You can respond with force if you're the victim of an armed attack. Now, some states like the United States say armed attack and use of force are synonymous. If it's a use of force, it's an armed attack. So anything that's a use of force, the U.S. could respond to in self-defense. That's actually a minority view. Most states, well over 100, take the view that an armed attack is higher, it, you know, is of more significant scale and effects than a mere use of force. So you could have like a, a border incident where somebody, you know, in the DMZ shoots. And even if someone, you know, one person is killed or something, that might not constitute, you know, an armed attack that would allow the other side to respond in self-defense. You know, you need more than that. And so that's, you know, one of the challenges we've also seen in the cyber context is, you know, in addition to figuring out what's a use of force, when would a cyber operation actually go so far as to be an armed attack? Because if it's an armed attack, you could respond not just by cyber, but by, you know, you could you could put missiles in the air or you could put boots on the ground uh, if you're the victim of an armed attack. So cyber does not need to be met by cyber under the existing law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Illinois MCLE podcast.